Let's see if I can uh, put together a sermon. <laughs> I find there's so many things to get need to get done. It's very difficult. Um, I don't think I finished 100% finished my notes until probably 11:30 at last night, and was practicing until one. So hopefully, hopefully this comes out all right. Um, one of the things that I've done through my Christian walk, so to speak, I guess is that, um, you know, you, you always have certain places that you end up and you have a path that you walk. And in my sermons that I give, I often am giving what I'm studying at that time and what what's, I feel is being led on my heart at that time. Um, I've had people that I had, uh, had as guests that came and they thought, oh, that sermon was partly for me, wasn't it? I don't know, that maybe if the Holy Spirit led you to believe that, but that sermon was for me, you know, I'm only sharing what he's already doing for me and what I need to learn. And, you know, like I said before, I don't have time to study and then study for something that I think you guys need. I can only study for what I need and then I can share that with you. So hopefully you'll have uh, a blessing in this, uh, in this uh, sermon. One of the things is, is I've come through this walk and, you know, when you first become a Christian, you want to go tell everyone, but you're not just telling everyone about necessarily Jesus Christ, right? The first thing you do when you tell everyone is you tell everyone they're wrong. <laughs> like everything you believed is wrong, but let me show you what's right. You know, and then we go down this path and we go down these different stages. And at some point, you know, I've gotten to this point where, you know, I'm doing all these studies, I'm doing all these devotionals, I'm buying all these books and getting all this stuff. And, you know, but then I realized that I'm sitting here waiting on God. I'm trying to figure out what God, do you, what do you want me to do? And it seems like silence. And I don't know. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I'm like, am I, am I not studying right? Or am I not doing this right? You know, it's just silence. Am I not able to hear? Is he not talking to me? So that's where this, this, this sermon title came to me at like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> so, waiting on God in the midst of silence. And this is where I kind of felt like I was at this point in time. Like, I don't know what God's necessarily wanting for me. So, I had studied out um, this sermon. Um, before we get into it, um, in this particular sermon, it's going to be about revival. And it's never too early, it's never too late to get a revival, a revival of the Holy Spirit, to understand what God wants for us and to, to ask for that. Um, but before we get into it, I want to just pray. If you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you with a message to share to the congregation. I just want to ask that you pour your Holy Spirit out upon us. God, I am nothing. I have nothing good to say. Anything that I have that has any meaning is you that is speaking through me. God, I just ask that you bless the congregation, that if there's anything in this sermon that is of value to them, that they gain the understanding from you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So, as I studied this, there were two powerful statements by Ellen White that started a kind of guiding principle for me through this sermon. The first one is a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. 
from Ellen White's Selected Messages. And that's true whether you're new or old or you had it once and you lost it or you haven't got it yet and you just need it. It is our greatest and most urgent of all our needs. Even if you have it, you could probably get more of it. <laughs> for, you know, so the next one is from the Review and Herald. It says, There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out His Spirit upon a languishing church and an impenitent congregation. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small, to the end of time. So, nothing more that we need than a genuine spiritual revival. Nothing that Satan fears more. The, the entire host of Satan trembles when we get on our knees. There's nothing more important for us to be concerned with as church administrators, as pastors, should have no, no other concern. Uh, the members in the congregation, the community at large, seeking revival should be our top priority. What is more critical than the people of God to be seeking that revival and that asking of the Holy Spirit? We need to plead to an agonizing, I can't even find the words, but just to ask God, to beg God for the Holy Spirit and Pentecostal power. It probably should be the first top meeting agenda item on every board meeting in every church. How do we get this? What are we going to do? How are we going to motivate the members? How are we going to ask for this from God? How are we going to get everyone on board? But revival ultimately always begins with one man, one woman, one boy, one girl, seeking God on their knees. And that can be one of us, any of us. God's promise is for you. Second Chronicles 7.14, the scripture reading, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Throughout history, God has sent many revivals. In response to prayers, our in-day time revival, our in-time revival, will come in, in probably our day. We, we, we may get to see that. And that revival is going to come whether we're a part of it or we're asking for it or we're ready for it or not. The greatest revivals in history have been of the result of heartfelt, earnest prayer. Prayer. The sparks of such a revival is kindled on the altar of prayer. And they only become flames from those sparks. Without prayer, we have no power. Ellen White could not be clear, clearer in stating reality. Revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. In Acts 1, the New Testament church we see is bathed in prayer. The believers heeded Jesus' uh, instructions to wait for the promise of the Father. They believed as they ought that God would send power and that they would receive it. In the Acts narrative, we see... The Acts narrative is plain that we see these uh, early dis disciples 
speaking of those early disciples, sorry, <laughs> speaking of the early disciples, it says, uh, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. In response to these faith-filled prayers, the Holy Spirit was poured out in Pentecostal power, and 3,000 people were baptized. 3,000 people were converted. The record states, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and, and in prayers. So everything the apostles were doing, they had been taught and that they were continuing on. They were continuing on the doctrine. They were continuing on the prayers. That was the most important thing. We see that the early Christians united in making a world-changing difference, all based on prayer. Prayer ultimately is what made the difference in that time period. Acts 4.31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Can you imagine being somewhere that you prayed so earnestly, so heartfelt, so longing for God that the building actually shook? And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They gave continually in prayer. It was always prayer. Prayer was first. Acts 10 shows that Peter was led to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And at that point, he was opened up a whole new realm of doorways to spread the word, to spread the proclamation of the gospel. When the early church united in prayer, God sent angels to free Peter out of the prison. Prayer was at the heart, as was the core of the New Testament church power. And it was also a part of the early Advent movement. Pioneers were great, both men and women, with prayer. That was their core belief. Describing the process of prayer in the initial stages of the early Advent movement, Ellen White says, at our, er, at our important meetings, these men, early Advent leaders, would meet together and search for truth as for hidden treasure. I met with them and we studied and prayed earnestly, for we felt we must learn God's truth. Often we remained together through the entire night, praying for light and studying the word. We fasted and prayed. Great power came upon us. You know, sometimes I have trouble praying for 30 minutes, you know, because I don't have the practice, I don't have the relationship, but they prayed all night. It's just amazing. E. Ellen White constantly urged the Adventists to seek God in prayer. The greatest victories gained for the cause of God are not the result of labored argument, ample facilities, wide influence, or abundance of means. And so this is talking about me right here, because like I said, when I first became a Christian, I went and told everyone they were wrong. And I went and bought a whole bunch of books to prove they were wrong. <laughs> and it tells us here there's no amount of labored argument, ample facilities, or wide influence that can do this. They are gained in the audience chamber with God. With earnest, agonizing faith, men lay hold upon the mighty arm of power. And so those are very strong words. Earnest, agonizing faith. They didn't just pray. They agonized 
over it. Believing the second coming of Christ was imminent, these, these Adventists humbled their hearts, they confessed to their sins, they interceded for family, for friends, for community, for their congregation. In March of 1840, William Miller had a series of prophetic lectures in Portland, Maine. Hundreds of people crowded the church. Some stayed from the early morning until late at night. The Holy Spirit moved powerfully among this congregation. Ellen White describes the impact of the meetings. Terrible convictions spread through the entire city. Prayer meetings were established. And there was a general awakening among the various denominations, for they all felt more or less the influence that proceeded from the teaching of the coming of Christ. Prayer meetings had been spread throughout the entire city. People were praying. There's certain, there is a certainty regarding general revival. Prayer initiates revival. Prayer sustains revival. Prayer nurtures revival. And prayer follows revival. So we can see prayer and revival are inseparably linked. We can't have one without the other. And it starts with that. It, it's throughout revival that we have prayer. It follows that we need prayer. It's the whole process. uh, Revivalist Leonard Ravenhill put it like this. Without exception, all true revivals of the past began after years of agonizing, hell-robbing, earth-shaking, heaven-sent intercession. The secret to true revival in our own day is still the same, but where, oh where, are the intercessors? And there again we have that incredibly strong language. Agonizing, hell-robbing, earth-shaking, heaven-sent intercession. I don't think I've ever prayed like that. I need to. One of the greatest in history is the revival of the, the Welsh Revival. It started in 1904, and it was all tracked back to a 26-year-old man named Evan Roberts, He was praying for 13 years in this way. He was praying for 13 years that his life would be totally and completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. He prayed into the night. He interceded for teens, for young adults in his church. He especially prayed that God would visit his Wales church with revival power. And it all started at a youth meeting. And he shared his experience with God with the youth around him. He urged his friends to seek the infilling of God's Spirit. Sixteen people in that meeting were converted. Sixteen young people were converted and baptized in that meeting. It was said that that was the sparks of the revival that became flames. Within nine months, a hundred thousand people were converted across the entire country. A hundred thousand people in nine months. We'd probably be okay with one. 100,000 people. There's not even that many people in our area. Crime dropped. Drunkards and prostitutes were converted. They said that pubs were reporting losses. 
Lloyd George, he was the Prime Minister of England, he, he was retired at the time, but he said there was a reported a night that there was one Sabbath, one Saturday night, that a pub sold only nine cents of liquor. Nine cents, that's all they, they managed. They actually were converting pubs into just prayer houses. They're like, well, we can't make a business out of pubs selling alcohol anymore. So they were converting these empty buildings into prayer houses. Political meetings and soccer matches, everything they were doing, they were like, okay, we have to have a, a meeting for the, the, the city. Nope, we have to wait because everyone's in prayer. People were praying six, eight hours at a time, and they were delaying or postponing meetings, soccer matches, sports functions. There were miners, Welsh miners, that were crowding these spirit field services, but they returned changed. Profanity disappeared from their lips. These, these right here are called pit ponies. They're smaller than a normal horse. They're smaller than like a, a donkey or a mule. And they could fit in these mines and they could drag their, their, uh, their baskets or whatever those are, the carts to, with all their mining stuff, the rocks and things that they were getting out of there. It was said that these pit ponies could no longer understand the miners because profanity was gone. They were like, who are these people? They, it was like they were speaking with the language of heaven. And the and pit ponies are like, I don't know what you're saying. The revival weakened around 1906, but the impact on tens of thousands of lives continued. All changed because of one man. Evan Roberts took the Lord's example serious. It was asked of a lady that lived in the time uh, many years later why she thought the Welsh revival faded. And her response was, it never faded in my heart. She had held on to that revival for 75 years. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson was certainly correct when he said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. One of the most dramatic changes of all is the fall of the Berlin Wall. Few realized that prayer was the root cause of it. November 9th, 1989, this all happened. All prayer led up to that day. In 1982, seven years earlier, a pastor, Christian Fuhrer, each Monday opened his doors for prayer. It grew and grew and grew until one Monday... In October 1989, so seven years later, one month before the Berlin Wall fell, 8,000 people packed his congregation. That's what it had grown to. However, that was all that could fit. There were thousands more in the streets outside of the church praying, and it had spread nationwide. A freedom movement had began. It was all through the villages. It was all through the, the townships. They had claimed that that one Monday night they had over a million people praying praying for freedom. 20 years later, commenting on the absolute necessity of prayer, the pastor Christian Fuhrer declared, we realized that if we stopped praying, there would be no hope for change in Germany. Former, a former official was, uh, gave his testimony of it. He worked for the Stasi, which is the East German secret police. And he said... We were ready for anything. The police, riot gear, guns, probably had bomb-sniffing dogs, who knows, except candles and prayers. 
They didn't know what to do with that. Ellen White states a similar truth about the power of prayer. She says, At the sound of fervent prayer, Satan's whole host trembles. Intercessory prayer is powerful. Just as the Berlin Wall fell, the walls that we put up in our own heart, the walls that block us from receiving the power of God can be torn down through prayer. The walls that we put up hold back the revival that God so desperately wants to give us. The walls are of pride, prejudice, anger, bitterness, lust, complacency, lukewarmness, materialism. Power is an, uh, prayer is a necessity for revival. A.T. Pearson makes an observation. From the day of Pentecost, there has not been one spiritual awakening in any land that has not begun in a union of prayer. Though only among two or three, no such outward, upward movement has continued after such prayer meetings have declined. In prayer, we humble our hearts before God. We acknowledge our dependence on Him. We, in prayer, we, we unite with David, pleading, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We confess with Daniel, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants the prophets. And we cry out with Paul when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But with prayer... That's when we grasp a hold. When he says the promise, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Prayer opens cleansing power. The Holy Spirit x-rays our soul when we pray. The hidden sins that we hide, defe- uh, defe- we hide defects keep us from being the powerful witnesses that we can be for Jesus Christ. He longs for us to be those powerful witnesses. In prayer, we open our minds to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We seek our, His wisdom, not our own. Prayer also enables God to work more powerfully than if we had not prayed. This conflict between Christ and Satan is a battle of forces between hell and righteousness. It's a real war. Some people have forgotten this, this day and age in our community, that this war is waging that we can't even see. Thousands upon thousands of good and evil angels are involved. A third, a third of all the angels in heaven rebelled against God. We read that in, in Revelation 12. Forces of evil bring disappointment, disease, disaster, and death. But the forces of righteousness bring joy, peace, health, and life. Each one of us participates in this conflict. Our planet is in rebellion against God. Since the time that Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation of the evil one, they forfeited dominion to Satan. John 12, 31 says Satan became ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2 also calls him the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh 
and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But of course, prayer is the weapon to defeat these forces. 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Through prayer, we give God permission to work on our behalf. This struggle, God is voluntarily limiting Himself. He cannot violate our power of choice. He loves us too much to take away our freedom, so we have to ask. He is doing everything He can with the ground rules of the conflict. And you know how the ground rules of war go? The rules of war are only ever followed by the good guys. The bad guys are what rules? He's trying to save humanity. Whether I pray or not, he's reaching out to my family. Whether they pray for me or not, he's working in my life. Whether I pray or not, there is a measure of protection that God surrounds us with in angelic force. But when I pray, when I seek him... I open up, through prayer, new channels that He can help us, that He can be there for us. He respects my power of choice as I pray. In the great controversy, Ellen White says, it is part of God's plan to grant us, in answer to the prayer of faith, that which He would not bestow, did we not thus ask. There's a marvelous passage in 1 John 5.14. Let's turn there. It actually describes what happens when we pray. And this, let's see, first John 5. This, um, this passage, it more than just admonishes us to pray. It more than urges us to pray. It more than encourages us to pray. It actually explains why prayer is so effective. So in first John five fourteen. It says, now this is the confidence that we have in Him. So read that right there. Our confidence isn't in our prayer. Our confidence isn't in our faith. Our confidence is in Him. The Apostle goes on to say, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. So here we can be confident that when we send up a prayer, that we send up those petitions, that He does hear them, He does get them. But what's interesting is what happens next, because it, it explains what happens. Uh, it explains what happens when we intercede for others. Verse 16 says, "If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death." Now, of course, the sin that does lead to death is the unpardonable sin. It's when someone's hardened their heart to the Holy Spirit and they're not listening any longer. So we have, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. He will ask. The He in this point is the intercessor, right? Uh, and he, God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. So we see here that God actually flows life through us to intercede on other 
people's behalf. We become the channels of His illimitable power. Intercessory prayer makes a difference in people's lives because it is that prayer that is what God funnels everything through. And of course, Jesus is our great model of intercession. He regularly retreated to a quiet place to pray. He sought God for strength to meet all of His challenges. He pleaded with God. He agonizingly had prayer to ask God for the strength to overcome Satan's temptations. The Gospel of Mark records one of Jesus' early morning sessions. Mark 1, uh, 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. If If Jesus, the divine Son of God, needed prayer, required prayer, how much do we need prayer? How much do we need to get on our knees? Jesus recognized that inner strength came from prayer. Luke records his habits in Luke 5.16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. It became a vital key part of his life. It was a key to staying connected with the Father. Daily, he renewed his relationship with the Father. He became refreshed and committed to, God, to God's will. Luke describes, as he, Jesus, prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Can you imagine experiencing that kind of renewal where your face is different, you're, you're glowing? Jesus was never too busy to pray. He always had time. He always found time to pray. He would stop and pray before he did anything else. He was filled with power because of prayer. Now there's uh, Reuben A. Torrey. He, he was an evangelist back in the time that the Advent movement was starting. Now he laments to the busyness of today's Christianity, which is interesting because, again, we're talking about 200 years ago, but it's more true today than it even was back then. And at time, our modern-day Christianity is powerless. And he says, we are too busy to pray, and and so we are too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. Ellen White makes the same point. In the book of education, she says many, even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. There is one thing for certain, that we do not have the power to face the devil on our own. But prayer is the answer. Through prayer, God bathes us in his presence and power. Through prayer, he touches our hearts and our loved ones. Armored with prayer, we can face the enemy in the end times. It is impossible for us to live godly lives with an inconsistent prayer life. 
connection, our connection becomes broken. Our connection with God becomes severed, and then our power from God is cut off. We don't have it when we don't have prayer. Little prayer equates to little power. Prayer, it becomes a humble acknowledgement. God, I cannot walk this Christian life. I cannot be this Christian without you. It's an admission of an inability to cope with Satan's temptations, to understand that we cannot do this, that we need God. On our knees pleading for God, we will experience miracles. We will see his hand moving miraculous things in our lives, in the lives of the people we're praying for. We will come back refreshed, invigorated, just as Jesus did. Would you like an experience, to experience a spiritual revival in your life? Would you desire a renewed spiritual experience? Are we tired of spiritual complacency? Are we ready for the next step of our journey? Do we long for revival in our church? Our Lord promised to answer our earnest longings of his children's. He will respond if we seek him. The promise is ours. In Second Chronicles 7.14, again the scripture reading, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now Jesus adds a promise to that. In Luke 11.13, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, in conclusion, it reminds me of a joke my my, uh, grandpa used to say. He said, you know what happens? Well, you know what it means when someone on the pulpit says, in conclusion? Nothing. He can only be 25% through his sermon. <laughs> it doesn't mean a thing. But I really am almost done. So what I did was I found four prayer principles. And what I did was I created a little uh, cheat sheet. It's a half page. It's back there on the sound booth if you want to grab one on the way out. I didn't know how many people need it, what might need it or might be interested in it. These are not necessarily my created prayer principles. These are from Mark Finley's. Um, but I thought they were really good for me. So since I was going to share them, I figured I'd make the cheat sheet. It's got verses in there for you to pick up. Um, but the prayer principles kind of becomes a, a way for us to kind of just create a foundation of how do we pray. And it's been helping me fulfill a fuller prayer life. So the first principle is to set aside a specific time each day to be alone with God. And I've had a lot of trouble with this myself is because you have the hustle and bustle of life. And I have to learn to get up earlier and start my day with God and to make sure that that's the first thing I do in anything I do. Now, it's easy to use what they call the ACTS uh, model to pray. And the ACTS model uh, is A-C-T-S. A is adoration. C is confession. T is thanksgiving. And S is supplication. We're just going to go through them real quick. A is adoration. And this is where we praise God. We we lift him up for who or we lift look up to him for who he is right we're not really giving thanks to him at this point uh, because we're just saying hey god you're such a great god your grace is amazing you're long suffering thank you you know all these different things we're praising him one psalm states whoever offers praise glorifies me the next one confession 
we are told that the, uh, the disciples, the early disciples, did this deep soul searching, right? We confess our sins, but more importantly, we ask God for, to reveal, to, to use the Holy Spirit to reveal anything inside us that we need to, un, to get out of us, to, to change, to, to uh, you know, in all those respects. Uh, the Acts of the Apostles said, these days of preparation were days of deep heart searching, the disciples felt their spiritual need and cried to the Lord for the holy unction that was to fit them for the work of soul saving. The next one is thanksgiving. Now this is where we can create lists and we can be thankful to God for what he did, right? We gave praise to him for who he was and then we can thank him for what he's done in our lives, what he's done and for the people that we prayed for. Paul instructs us, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all the things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can always just remember not to take for granted those blessings and just to provide, uh, give thanks. The last one, of course, is supplication. Now, God is immensely happy when we come to him as like little children that depend on the father, right? When Mason comes to me and he needs something, you know, daddy, can you help? You know, a lot of times I stop what I'm doing and I go help him. You know, God was the same way. He wants to help us. And when we ask for that help, he's ready to provide it. So it's important that we be there and pray for each other. We use intercessory prayer. We pray for our own needs. But it's even more important to pray for each other because that's where that life flows through us. Now, I found this helps provide a framework so I don't get distracted in my prayer. And maybe you guys don't need that. That's fine. I just, for me, I would get distracted. I would be praying, and I'm like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be praying, but I'm praying along. And I'm like, oh, yeah, and the dogs, I think the dogs need, oh, wait a minute, I'm praying. You know, <laughs> you know so I would have this problem. And so this really helped me do that. Um, so the next one is to read the Bible prayerfully, allowing the Holy Spirit to impress your mind. And I've started doing this where I'm actually incorporating the Bible and Scripture in my prayer to extend it out and to really have a conversation, right? Because sometimes I can't hear God, but through His Word, He's talking to us. So we let God's Word become the subject matter. If prayer is the breath of revival, then Bible study is the heart of revival, so one of the ideas we can do here is we can take the Psalms, right? There's a lot of Psalms. So we can take the Psalms one chapter at a time. We can read a few verses. We can meditate on it. We can, um, you know, fill our minds with that verse. We can prayerfully seek out the Holy Spirit, ask what he's trying to tell us in these cases. Another situation that we could use is the last scene of Christ's life. Uh, we, there's six chapters that go over the last scenes of Christ's life. And here they all are. They're on the cheat sheet. Psalms 22, Isaiah 53, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. These all are the chapters that cover the last few scenes of, God's, of Christ's life. So we can kind of see this and use that to just prayerfully look at his sacrifice for us. And we'll see that it'll affect us in different ways. What, as we read it, we'll see that we feel not worthy, but we feel gracious. We'll feel the love that God has bestowed on us. It's a really neat experience, I've found. We can see marvelous results. Ellen White says, Take the Bible and on your knees plead with God to enlighten your mind. 
If we would study the Bible diligently and prayerfully every day, we should every day see some beautiful truth in a new, clear, and forcible light. The third one is learn to pray out loud. Aloud, out loud, whatever. The, the one thing that I was doing was, it was the same thing as the Acts model. I would sit there and I'd pray silently to myself. And I could be in a room by myself, but I'm still just praying in my head, and I would have the same problem. I'd be like, dude, dude, you know, I'm praying. And I'm like, you know, solar panels for the chicken coop so I'd have lights. Oh, I'm praying. You know, and I'd come back. And so when I pray out loud, I, you're engaging multiple senses, right? Your mind is praying. You're yearning God. You're, you're reaching that. But you're speaking and you're hearing. And you're tying it all together so that you can stay, maintain that focus. So praying aloud is something that's really helped me. The last one. Organize a small prayer group of three to five people to pray once a week. And this is something where Jesus has instructed his disciples to pray together. He said, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And Ellen White adds, the promise is made on the condition that the united prayers of God's people are offered. And in answer to these prayers, there may be expected a greater power that which comes in answer to private prayer. The power given will be proportionate to the unity of the members and their love for God and for one another. So we see this kind of special power that comes from being unified in prayer. And we do our Wednesday prayer meeting, and that's good if you can participate in that. But it's also good just to have other people. You could have friends and family that you're praying with and having a little prayer meeting with. But to be in one accord, to be praying for the Holy Spirit, to pray for knowledge, sometimes just that regular prayer with the family in your lives, not telling them, oh, you need to do this or oh, you need to do that, but just prayer can help open them up because they're praying with you for the same thing. And they may not have ever prayed that before until you're there with them praying. The history of revival is a rich history of praying people. The history of the church is of seeking God together. The church was revived with prayer bands. So they were pouring their hearts out to God. So why not start one? Why not invite friends? Why not intercede for family, for community, for all the people around us? A praying father or mother can affect a child. A praying husband or wife can make a difference in the life of their marriage. A praying members of the church can make a difference in the church. And praying people in the community can make a difference in an entire landscape. We need to learn from the legacy of the prayer giants. We have Moses and Joseph and Daniel. They, we have the same potential if we just learn from them to see how they demonstrated that they can change history with prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. I can never say that enough. And that's something that God has been just pounding into me lately is just that when I'm not, when I'm sitting here in this silence, when I'm waiting for God, like, okay, God, I'm going to go walk my property again. I hope you're going to do something for me. He says, you need to ask. You need to get down on your knees. Lift up our petitions. Seek the ones whose ear is always bent low, listening. He's always listening. He's wanting, yearning. 
He can only do so much. He's wanting to hear our prayers. When we do, we will discover an all-essential key for revival, for life, and the end-time church. So now I'm ready to close, and we'll bow your heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for being the God that yearns for a relationship with us, that you've given us freedom, which unfortunately so many of us take for granted, that we can have so much more, that we don't have to be a part of this sinful world, that we can rejoice in the benefits of righteousness, that we can intercede for those around us and feel your life that you flow through us to our community. God, we just ask that you continue being the patient, long-suffering God that you always have been and always will be, that you keep leading us and guiding us and keep being there as a part of that relationship with us. Dear, dear God, we ask that you look after the fellowship meal we're about to partake in and we bless the fellowship and in Jesus Christ's name, amen.